Hi, my name is Molly Schulte Tucker, and I have the privilege of pastoring the good people of Ridgewood Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky. month of May, we have been focusing on mental health, especially through the lens of family systems theory or Bowen family systems theory. While I am not a trained therapist, I do believe that this theory tells us a lot about ourselves as individuals and family systems and also tells us about ourselves as people within a church family. Our first two weeks, we discussed how you are not created in a vacuum, but are created by influences, by family and friends, whether blood-related or not. But we are not meant to live in isolation. We are intended from the point of creation to be living in community with one another. This week, we're sharing an extended conversation with the Reverend Dr. Dan Coger who is the pastor of Churchland Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. Dr. Coger has taught the theory at Baptist Theological Seminary of Richmond and has been gracious enough to share with us in this extended interview. Enjoy. I would like to introduce the Reverend Dr. Dan Coger. Uh, who is currently the pastor at Chesapeake Baptist Church. I'm sorry, Churchland Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. Um, Dr. Coger, uh, most notably, what we're talking about at Ridgewood has been uh, family matters, especially the uh, Bowen family systems theory. And Dr. Coger has taught this uh, previously at Baptist Baptist Theological Seminary of Richmond. Perhaps the most important note for me is that you're Kristen's dad, um, my friend Kristen. Chris, Kristen's my daughter. I was here first. Remember, <laughs> you were here first. <laughs> I won't. I won't tell her you said that. But, um, but I am just. I'm. I'm really grateful that you have agreed to share your knowledge and your wisdom on Bowen Family Systems Theory. And I think I started out an email saying, you know, I'm not an expert. I'm not a therapist. I don't. And and Dr. Coger, of course, said, well, I'm not a therapist. But but you are an expert. <laughs> so I'm, I'm really grateful for you being willing to, um, to share this. This is something that we've been, um, piecing together, uh, in the month of May, but this is kind of going to be a, um, a putting it all together moment, I think for us, as we learn about some of the history, um, of the theory and, and then apply it to some scripture today. So, uh, with that, I'm going to turn it over to you. Thank you, Molly. It's a pleasure to meet you, and I uh, affirm uh, you for being willing to dedicate uh, this kind of focusing your congregation to May is Mental Health Month. I um, am glad we use the phrase mental health awareness and not mental illness, because mental health is a much broader perspective. Uh, so I'm thankful to have this moment. I'll try to uh, be as concise as I can. My background is I was first introduced to Bowen Family Systems Theory in 1997. Uh, and I've been involved in clergy groups of variety uh, of, of formats since then. Uh, and I, when I first was introduced to theory, all these light bulbs went on. Things began to make sense to me in my life, in my family, in my congregation that I couldn't quite figure out. So I'm a, a firm believer that this is a way to look at life. 
and uh, I thank you for the chance to share with you. I'm going to do kind of a, a down and dirty overview. I think it's important you have a, enough information, enough background to know why I'm drawn to this theory. I'm not a therapist or a clinician, um, but I've been involved in enough to, to at least know what I don't know. Uh, but I do think it's a, a great way to look at life and relationships. So allow me to do that. Um, I want to begin by just introducing Dr. Murray Bowen, uh, B-O-W-E-N. Uh, Bowen Family System Series named after Dr. Bowen. It is the only approach to therapy or psychiatry that is named after an individual. Uh, that's how far uh, reach his impact has been. Uh, Bowen Family Systems Theory is a theory of human behavior that views the family as an emotional unit and uses systems thinking to describe the complex interactions that, that occur within a family. Let me begin by saying uh, Bowen theory does not put value judgments on experiences. They're not positive or negative. They're not good or bad. There are places where you find health and, and unhealth. You find good functioning, you find dysfunction, but we try not to put any value judgment on our observations, on those involved, those we're working with, and, and just look at it holistically. Um, the theory begins with the understanding that it is, it, is, it is the nature of a family that its family members, think of your nuclear family, are intensely connected emotionally. And often when something happens, people feel like they're distant or they're disconnected from their families, but that is more feeling than fact. Bowen theory makes a good distinction between thinking and feeling. Uh, families are so profoundly connected that they're they affect one another's thoughts and feelings and actions, so much so that sometimes people feel like they're living in the same emotional skin. People try to get other person's attention, their approval, their support. They react to needs and expectations. And when someone's upset, we, we react to that. That's the way the family dynamic is, is, is wired and formatted, which means the various members of the family are extremely interconnected. And a change in one person's functioning uh, is going to be followed by some reciprocal change in the function of others. Uh, now, families do differ on the extent of their ability to be interdependent and connect at the same time, but it's always present to some degree. Bowen Family Systems Theory offers the perspective that this emotional interdependence evolved so the family could stay connected, they could be cohesive, they could protect each other shelter each other and feed each other. At the same time, when tension gets high, when anxiety rises, for whatever reason, uh, the emotional processes within the family tend to be intensified and we get stuck rather than being able to look at the larger picture and know how to adapt. When family members get anxious, uh, their anxiety is contagious. It spreads from one person to the next. And as, as the anxiety goes up in, in a family, uh, again, for whatever reason, uh, the connection between the family becomes more stressful than comforting. And when that happens, we often feel overwhelmed or isolated, feel like life is out of control. When that happens, we find that folks within the family often accommodate as a way to reduce the tension they're feeling. It may be perceived as I'm doing this to be helpful, and it may be. At the same time, it's often related to our fact we're doing something and not doing something to, to try to lower the tension or the anxiety that, that we're feeling or we're sensing from someone else. For example, 
a person may take on uh, more responsibility, too much responsibility, when they feel like they're not living up to the unrealistic expectations they have. And when they overfunction, somebody else is going to underfunction. That's that reciprocity that the theory points us to. Or someone can give up making decisions for themselves that they feel like another person's anxious when they identify who they are, the principles, the decision making in this situation. So the system kind of absorbs that anxiety, which means oftentimes from a therapeutic perspective in terms of mental health, when the anxiety is that high, we see behaviors such as depression. Over time, we might see alcoholism. We might see affairs outside of relationship. We might even see physical illness. That's the way our bodies are made. So physiologically, that anxiety and tension affects us. You can feel it in your gut. Or you have trouble breathing, shortness of breath. All those can be reactions that we experience when we have some kind of tension or anxiety in our family. That's how our bodies respond to that, or I should say react to that kind of tension. Let me take a moment and just introduce you too, Dr. Bowen, because that's important to understand in how he developed this theory. It took over 20 years for him to develop this theory and the final eight concepts that he has included. I won't go into all the eight concepts, but it, it took 20 years to, to develop his theory. He was a medical doctor in World War II. He served in the Army Medical Corps. He was stationed in Europe. And while he was serving that capacity, he became really interested in psychiatry after seeing how soldiers responded or reacted to trauma. He became interested in the effects of trauma on the soldiers. And his theory as it has evolved helps us understand how different people manage stressful situations in different ways. In a family, one member of the family can be in the same stressful situation and he or she may respond in a more healthy way, whereas another family member may respond in an unhealthy way. So there's a varying degree and he noticed that different soldiers responded in different ways to their stress, and that piqued his interest. He came back, and rather than returning to the medical field as a doctor, he began to be trained in psychiatry. And in that day, back in the, the late 40s, early 50s, the, the primary approach to therapy was, psychoanal was psychoanalysis. But as he looked at the dynamics, reflecting on his experience with soldiers in the war, he decided to go in another direction. He thought that human difficulties went beyond unresolved in issues in any one individual or in their psyche, their, their, their cognitive process. And he began to observe that these issues were really embedded in a person's family system. So he began to focus on relationship systems instead of the typical approach of that time, focusing on just one individual. And rather than try to continue a medical model, he began to develop a systemic model that looked at the larger dynamics of the entire family, including previous generations. How did our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents deal with stress and anxiety? Because those processes are handed down emotionally, just like DNA in terms of eye color, hair color, size and weight. We have this emotional DNA that is transmitted from one generation to the next. Thus the concept of Bowen family systems theory. The theory focuses on big picture patterns of the system rather than just narrow individual behaviors. Uh, what drew me to the theory initially was it, it moves beyond linear cause and effect thinking. We like to think cause and effect. And we like to think in a linear way. We're trained in school to think like it. We're trained to analyze, not look systemically. 
And Dr. Goldman took that systemic look. So the theory invites us to use a really wide lens as we look at each family member through the family dynamic and not focus on just one person or only look at a situation out of our own subjective experience. So one of the gifts for me has been as I've tried to embrace the theory is it helps me look beyond fault finding and blaming to try to understand what's really going on within a person as they respond or react to a certain situation. And it also helps me understand how we work to define ourselves and all of our relationships so we can grow to be our best selves. The theory is focused on self-awareness and my own mental health rather than me trying to diagnose what's wrong with you or what you need to do to make my life more livable or more reasonable or more acceptable. Here's a snapshot view of Bowen Family Systems Theory and allow me to read a little more slowly. Bowen Family Systems Theory is a theory of human behavior that uses the family as an emotional unit. That's important, the family as an emotional unit and uses systems thinking to describe all the complex interactions in that family unit. Families are systems of interconnected and interdependent individuals. But the basic unit of emotional function is not the individual. It is the entire nuclear family. To understand the individual, we must understand the family system of that individual. My wife teases me that when I meet someone new within five minutes, I know their birth order. That is not prescriptive, but it is descriptive. I'm an oldest son of a younger brother. My dad was an oldest brother of a younger brother and a younger sister. So those patterns kind of play out. And there are even examples in scripture that kind of speak to that. The bottom line is for Bowen Family Systems Theory, people cannot be understood in isolation from one another. You have to look at that larger dynamic of the family to understand what's going on with any one person, which was, as I said earlier, a shift from the typical approach to clinical work when Murray Bowen began to work with psychiatry. Our family is not just a collection of people that share the same name or the same address or even some relatives, but it is an organism. Remember, it's medical background. It is an organism in which attitudes and actions of each family member affect all those other family members. Which brings us to Bowen's understanding of the phrase he uses, the emotional system. Let me discuss that for a moment. Thinking systemically about human behavior, not looking at just one individual, but systemically in all those relationships, he developed the idea of the emotional system. Now, we're all familiar with the term emotional. And a lot of times we substitute the word feelings for the word emotions, but Bowen makes a clear distinction. Emotions are the larger dynamic. Feelings are one expression of that. So it's important to make the distinction between emotions and feelings as you understand how he approached his work. In Bowen theory, feeling is just the tip of the iceberg in the emotional system. If you, if you can picture in your mind an iceberg, we tend to get stuck on what we see above the line of the water. And we think that's what's going on. But what's really going on is all those dynamics, emotionally, relationally, that are beneath the surface. And Bowen's theory helps us understand that what is beneath the surface is really what's going on, and that's where all the stuff is happening, not what you see in public or see on the top of the surface. Emotional systems are inherently anxious. 
we don't necessarily like to use the word anxiety, but emotional systems are inherently anxious. And after doing this work for 37 years in a congregation, I've come to understand that congregations in particular seem to be emotional systems that are wired to absorb anxiety. Not only anxiety of the individuals or the families within the congregation, but also the anxiety in the culture, the community, the country in which the congregation finds its ministry context. Because when I walk in the door of the church, I don't take off a coat and leave outside in my car all the stuff churning inside of me. I bring it with me into the congregation and it plays out there. The emotional system is all is the way all people in the organization relate to each other, respond to each other, react to each other, and get on each other's nerves. I want to say that again. The emotional system is the way all people in the organization, family, school, civic club, congregation, relate to each other, respond to each other, react to each other, and get on each other's nerves. Does anybody ever get on your nerves? Do you ever get on anybody's nerves? Yeah. It happens, and we're not even aware of what's going on until we feel it somewhere. As I said earlier, I feel it in my gut. This is the, the silent buzz you feel when you in the air when you walk into a room. Have you ever walked into a room in the middle of a conversation and you feel something? It's like a little electrical jolt. And you know you stepped into something. You're not what you stepped into. That's a way for us to understand the emotional system, the power of the emotional system. And it really is the hidden challenge of being a leader in any setting, in the family, in the congregation, is to be aware of that, of that emotional process that is always there. My experience is most congregations have emotional process that has developed and evolved over years. From one pastoral leader to the next, from one generation to the next, our congregation has been here since 1785. Now, we do not have any charter members still with us. But I have had six generations of a family on a pew in a funeral at the same time, six generations of the same family. And most of those generations were raised in our church. When I talk to the child who's a sixth generation, I know that she has with her her great, great, great grandmother's stuff that her great, great, great grandmother brought to that church when she was alive and part of that group. Related to the emotional system is Bowen's understanding of the emotional process. I know the definition. I'll repeat it twice. The emotional process is the pattern ways in which a system, an emotional system, facilitates the emotional dynamics through relationships and how relationships are developed and how they function in order to maintain homeostasis. That's an important concept, and you'll hear more about that in a moment. I do not use family to describe the congregation because for me, family is a loaded term, even in the best of families. We expect, if the church is a family, we expect that church to be like my family. If my family's all happy and everything's going great, wonderful, my family's all screwed up, then that skews my perspective of the church. So I don't use church family uh, to describe the congregation because the congregation, the church is an emotional unit. It is an emotional system. An emotional process refers to the ways in which members of that family or any emotional system relate to each other on an emotional level. Remember, emotions and feelings are not the same in Bowen theory. 
And remember, we only see the tip of the emotional process. We never see what's going on beneath the surface, but we know that's where most of the stuff is going on. And that's where most of the reactivity happens when the emotional system is disturbed in any way for any reason. I mentioned the word homeostasis earlier. It's a medical term out of physiology, and it's a term that Bowen brought to his theory from his medical background. It is a term integral to understanding the theory, homeostasis. It comes from a Greek word that means same and steady. And it refers to any process that living things use to try and maintain fairly stable conditions. Any process that living things use to actively maintain fairly stable conditions. When my mom and dad would have a disagreement when I was growing up, my dad would walk out of the room. He did not know how to disagree with my mom. His way of managing and keeping things calm was to get up and walk out of the room rather than engage on a more personal level. So I'm, I'm, my default way of dealing with anxiety is to cut off and distance. I will literally walk upstairs, down the hall, down the stairs to avoid someone in the hallway of the first floor that I have some kind of tension with because I don't want to get caught up in that at the moment. That's how powerful this is, but it helps us keep things kind of calm and stable. Again, homeostasis is this tendency of a system, family, congregation, to maintain some kind of internal stability. All the parts in the system, all the members, all the folks get involved in this because they don't want to disturb that normal condition. But systems thinking asks us to step back and look at the whole rather than look at any one part. It also reminds us that there's no one aspect that can be identified as the problem. No one person can be the problem. If there's a problem, it's involved in the larger emotional process that is at play in that emotional system, which means mistakes can't be blamed on one person or one issue. Well, if that person would just leave, things will be better. No. There's somebody else waiting in the sidelines to step in and taking that role, whether they know it or not. That's the power of the emotional process. I won't just go on church members to leave. Well, when they do, nothing changes because the system is wired to have somebody there in that role. And the theory has to understand it, so I don't always take it personally when someone gets mad and leaves the church because it's not always about me. And sometimes it is, but it's not always about me. The theory gives me that perspective. In Bowen theory, we say that no one person has so much power in the system as to completely control or direct the system. No one person has that much power in the system because of this interplay of relationships and dynamics. Every emotional system, from a family to a congregation, achieves a certain balance over time. And this balance is healthy and necessary unless it becomes stuck. And when it becomes stuck, we begin to hunker down because we don't want that balance to change. We overlay this idea of homeostasis and system thinking. We offer this insight. The various components of the system are interdependent. They're not seen in isolation. With time, all these aspects come together to maintain a balance. And we might think of this balance as our comfort zone. Does your congregation have a comfort zone? Did you have a comfort zone in 2019? And has anything happened since 2019 or 2020 to upset that comfort zone? All emotional systems have a comfort zone, from the human body to a family 
to the emotional system, such as a congregation. And when something happens and one part makes a change in that system, it upsets the balance and all the other parts try to restore the balance. Picture in your mind uh, a toy mobile you might see on a baby's crib with all these different animals hanging down or whatever it might be. The slightest movement, they're all connected, the slightest movement in one part of that mobile causes all the other parts to move. Now, the, the mobile is designed to come back to a balance point, and it will, until another puff of wind comes along. The baby can hit one part of the mobile, and all the parts react. They all move. They'll come back to that balance point until something happens. In a congregation, that puff of wind can often be the winds of change or having to adapt, like adapt to a pandemic or any other, other factors that upset the balance. My observation is most congregations have three or four hot buttons that tend to get reactive when the balance is thrown off. Building budget bodies, okay? Building budget bodies are three pretty typical hot buttons in congregations. And when something happens, one of those hot buttons is gonna get kind of reactive. Well, we can't meet the budget, the building's falling apart, all these folks are leaving. These new people are coming in. They don't know how we do stuff here. Buildings, budgets, and bodies tend to be three stress points in most congregations. A phrase that reflects this tendency towards wanting that balance and saying the same is don't rock the boat. Or, this is my favorite congregations, we've always done it that way. It worked then. It's going to work now. That's how we try to create that, that balance point. We want to go back to like it was in 1963 because my life was comfortable then. It felt good. And we're not in Kansas anymore. And Bowen Theory reminds us of that. but gives us a way to adapt with, with health to those kinds of changes. The parts can be the organs in your body. If one water in your body is suffering, your body is going to adapt and other organs will pick up to help you survive, or it could be the reaction of a family. So when your family goes through some kind of change, it can be a really great change, but it upsets the balance in the family. It can be something that is not so good and upsets the balance in the family. And that kind of reactivity plays out in congregations when the balance changes or when the congregation steps outside its comfort zone. When we step outside the comfort zone, especially in a congregation, we see what Bowen calls sabotage. That's a, that's a pretty heavy word. But it's related to when the emotion, when the homeostasis, the balance in this emotional system called the congregation is upset. And in Bowen family systems theory, sabotage comes in reaction to changes in the emotional system. Your family, your congregation, your civic club, your school, wherever you work. When the homeostasis is disrupted, when the system is out of balance or the comfort zone is, is, is disruptive, sabotage is a sign of reactivity and resistance. I want to repeat that. When the homeostasis is disrupted, when the system is out of balance or the comfort zone is disturbed, sabotage is a sign of reactivity and resistance. Now, here's the kicker. Remember the iceberg? Sabotage is not necessarily an overt response. It is most often occurred in an unseen way. We're not even aware that it's going on, but it's how our bodies react, how the emotional system reacts. When the change comes along, even healthy change, 
because the balance is, is upset. Because the emotional system is formatted to maintain homeostasis, to maintain balance and sense of calm, the system's going to react in ways that pull things back to that balance point, to like they were in 1963 or like they were in 2019. It happens automatically, without thought, without awareness. We're not even aware of what's going on because it's beneath the surface. It happens in a nuclear family. It happens in a congregation. It is about the power of the pull toward homeostasis, which again is, is healthy and necessary until it becomes stuck and inflexible and rigid. Resistance occurs when the equilibrium or the homeostasis of a system is disturbed. For example, when, when one member of, of a system self-defines herself differently from her traditional role, the other members of the system might resist that and they might act out in some way that can be identified as sabotage in some unaware attempt to bring that person back to the way the role was filled before. I grew up in a two-career family before two-career families were invoked because my parents were poor. My mom had to go back to work to pay the bills, which is very atypical in their generation because mom stayed at home. That was their role. That's what they did. Well, I didn't grow up in that family because my parents, we were poor. Both of my parents had to work to pay the bills. So mom never had that traditional role, but families have that traditional role. And guess what? So do congregations. When people get anxious about change and that balance is upset, they get kind of reactive. And they want things to go back to that balance point where it felt comfortable. We need that for a while. But again, when it gets stuck, that's when the challenges arise. Reactivity is characterized when we make automatic responses to something. We, we, we clench our teeth. We clench our jaw. We feel something in our gut. When, we begin to blame and criticize and find fault in someone else that tells me I'm reactive about what's going on around me. It's not about the other person, about how I'm dealing with this loss of equilibrium or this change. We get uptight and we get defensive. Bowen Family Systems Theory allows us to step back, look at the larger picture, understand that everything affects everything else, and that this need to have balance is important until it becomes stuck. And when the balance gets thrown off kilter, we, we naturally get reactive, whether it's our family, our congregation, or our work. Now, that is probably nine credit hours of postgraduate degree coursework in however long I've been rallying on to give you some perspective on Bowen Family Systems Theory. <laughs> I hope that confuses you. <clears throat> I'm thoroughly, I'm thoroughly confused. No, that was wonderful. Um, and I'm wondering if I could just ask a few follow-up questions. Yes, all you want to. I, okay, I don't great. charge any more for questions. All right, <laughs> great. So you said uh, one thing. You said is that emotional systems are inherently anxious. Um, why is that so? What does the word anxious or anxiety mean? When you hear the word anxiety, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? I mean, I think of the word like nervous, um, you know. Of, of our, word, our word anxiety evolved from the Latin language. It means to choke, 
or to strangle. Mm-hmm. It was a word used to describe the ball. Remember it, it, when, when folks were put in prison, they had a, a, a shackle around their ankle and, a, and a, a chain with a big ball. So they can, that's the, that's the etymology of the word anxiety. Mm-hmm. Ever heard of angi- angina? Mm-hmm. Angina comes from the Latin word that is anxiety. It's how we, how our bodies react to anything that makes us uncomfortable. And there's this, there's this myth out there in the larger world, especially the Christian world, especially the Western Christian world, that is the church's job to make me happy. Or let me be so bold, it is the pastor's job to make me happy. <laughs> well, I have offended more than one person by saying, you know, I've looked at my job description. And making you happy is not listed in those 37 things I'm supposed to be doing. So I, I, I don't mean to let you down. It's not my job to make you happy. It's not the church's job to make us happy. And we think it is the church's job because it sounds so Christian. It sounds so loving. Love one another. Mm-hmm. If one part of the body hurts, the whole, the, the rest of the part of the body hurts. There's that dynamic that I think biblically, theologically speaks to Bowen Family Systems Theory. But churches are wired to absorb that. I said, I don't take off my anxiety coat when I walk in the door. I bring it with me. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I've got on an overcoat as well. And I bring that in there. That's why part of my work as a pastor is to be aware of the folks in our congregation enough to know what's going on. Let me give an example. I'll use a, I'll use a, a, a pseudonym. Uh, Shirley is a lifelong member. She's 80. Shirley has gone through three major health crises in the last two years. And she had a grandson die from an overdose. So when Shirley walks in the church and she seems tense and you can see it in her body, I know enough about her life to know that, that there's a lot of stuff going on with her. So if she gets reactive about something that we say or do, it's not about us. It's about how she's kind of, Find that balance point in our own life. So churches are just wired that way. Um, and it gets complicated when you've got all these other families bringing their stuff into the church. Now, don't, don't hear me saying this is a bad thing. Don't hear me saying the church is, you know, failing. It helps me, it helps me have some perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, that we bring that stuff with us. And it's my role as pastor to be aware of that as much as I can. And to find a purpose to speak to that in the congregational setting or to have that one-on-one conversation with Shirley. So tell me how you're doing. And then I say, so tell me how you're really doing. Because folks rarely answer the first question clearly. Tell me how you're really doing. <laughs> right, right. And that, that helps me have some awareness of that. Does that, does that give yeah. you a... Well, and I think that kind of uh, leads to another, que- another, I guess, observation that you said right at the beginning. Um, that I think our minds automatically go to, this is good, this is bad. We should be like this. We shouldn't be like this. This person is good. This person is bad. Um, and you said, you know, this this theory, it, there's not a value judgment on on what's going on. On, um, but but the words that you use that I think are really important um, for me and in, in my understanding of both my own mental health and in others is that there's health and unhealth. Um, and, and to recognize that and, um, uh, 
I think my I think my question coming off of that then would be um my my dog's drinking water if you can't hear him right next to me cliff okay i think but my question did that did that, did that make you anxious to hear your dog drinking water it, just you sound, it just sounds really gross so <laughs> i don't know how that came through on zoom but uh um let me let me it's a funny story uh <laughs> we have we we have a baptistry behind a crawl off that you could put the boat in uh-huh. and the um sump pump for the heat system <laughs> goes down that same drain so when i'm recording with my ipad during covid <laughs> in the middle of every sermon you hear this like toilet flush <laughs> and it's the condensate pump going down the drain by the baptistry it's like a huge megaphone so I finally just stopped. I did. I, first few times I stopped. I don't yeah. stop anymore. So I'm I'm good with water being in Are the background. You're used to it. Great, great. Um, I uh, where was I going? So it's a, it's a no value judgment. <laughs> no, that was bad. But but uh, family systems, you know, no value judgment. There's health and unhealth. How um. Maybe what is through the lens of family systems, what's a good way for us to, all of us to um, recognize when someone may be healthy or unhealthy? Um, and as a pastor, but, but I want this to apply to anyone in the congregation, what is a way to, um, I guess, draw, I don't want to say draw attention to unhealth, but, but what's a way to maybe, um, either recognize that within yourself or to recognize that within someone else of, I, I don't know if, you know, you're in a healthy place right now. Um, good question. And let me try to thread two or three needles at the same time. Um, the gift of Bowen family system theory for me is it, it calls me to self-awareness. It caused me to be aware and in touch with my own mental health, my own physical health, my own spiritual health. So self-awareness is, is an important part of that. It also caused me to be pretty clear about expectations that I have of myself and I have of others. Are all those expectations realistic? And are they appropriate? Um, Bowen Family Systems Theory calls us to act in uh, out of a self-defined posture and one way that i've tried to incarnate that is to live out of my values and my principles one of my principles is this i will always deal redemptively in any situation in any relationship i'll always try to be redemptive in any relationship so when someone acts out And don't don't over don't overhear acts out. But when someone acts out, um, sometimes I don't need to do anything. It it's just it's going to kind of take care of itself. That rarely happens with me. I find it necessary to have that conversation. And my open question is: I, I noticed, I heard what you said. I repeat it back. Did I hear the right thing? Why now? Why now? See, we want to ask the why question. 
But the why question is a finger pointing, blaming, fault finding, criticizing question. Why? Born Family Systems Theory asks the why now question. Why now is this going on? Why now is this happening? Mm. That may not be a sign of unhealth, but it's a sign of some kind of disturbance. Something, something's out of whack. Now, let me be very clear. In the arena of mental health, we have a different conversation. We know someone is dealing with some kind of a diagnosed mental illness. If they have a diagnosed health issue, that's a different conversation. Uh, I'm looking at health and unhealth more in terms of how we relate to each other, um, how we respond to each other. Uh, have you ever been in a, uh, you know, church business meetings are satanic. Uh, I think in one of the apocryphal books, they even talk about church business meetings are satanic. Have you ever seen anyone get upset in the business meeting and get up and walk out? Yeah. Okay. Why now? Why now? Why now that doesn't happen? Because we see the tip of the iceberg, but they walked out because of what's beneath the water. Mm -hmm. Something hooked them. Uh, so unhealth is unhealth really from a systemic perspective. When something gets stuck, that's when I think the unhealth begins to develop. If you don't agree with my political view, then you're just an idiot. Or if you don't interpret scripture like I do, you don't know what you're talking about. We 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 get stuck like that. That's when unhealth comes unhealth kicks in mm -hmm. because we're no longer looking systemically we're looking at how i want to be and what my world ought to be like and you bump up against that you've challenged me to think differently and I don't, i'm not going to think differently um and i do think that unhealth plays out physiologically uh i went through a heart issue in the fall i've never had heart trouble before i'm on medication now i did the research and found out that every pastor of this church since 1987 has had some kind of heart trouble. They didn't have it when they got there, but it evolved over time, which means oftentimes in an emotional system, when there's unrest, disturbance, conflict, the anxiety gets absorbed by the leader. The anxiety gets us pulled by the leader, and we absorb that physiologically. But because I knew what was going on, I, I didn't get all strung out. I get reactive. I worked with my doctor, made some adjustments. But I knew that I, 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 I called family members pretty passionate. You know, did Clint ever have heart trouble? You know, the last couple of years he was there. Yeah, he did. Mm. So that's a sign of unhealth. When I lose self-awareness. When I take on the church's anxiety, I become unhealthy because I'm carrying around stuff that is not mine to carry around. Mm -hmm. Now, you can say, well, that's not a very Christian way of looking at life. Mm -hmm. Jesus did say, shake the dust off your sandals and move on, which is that a sign of health or not? Yeah. I, th I think biblically speaking, we, that's, a, that's a, a, an example of, of a healthy response. Uh, I've done all I can do. Right. And you lay it down. You don't cut off. I'm not saying you cut off from that person, but you lay it down. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Well, and I, I think that, um, um, you know, 
churches, especially churches, <clears throat> when churches started really declining, you know, early nineties into two thousands and, and even, and especially now, um, the, the anxiety that's present, it, like what you said of, of, uh, buildings, budgets, and bodies, um, of the anxiety of, we have to do everything we can to make everyone happy. So everyone will stay so we can meet budget. So we can update our building. So, and there's this, and I think, um, the, the recognition that the leader, probably the pastor, but leaders, um, of the church absorb that. Um, I think for me, especially, and I had just talked about this in my sermon last week, uh, the, the great resignation, right. Of, of, um, pastors that are just leaving in, in hordes right now. Um, because even, even going to my therapist once a month, even going to my ministry coach once a month, even, you know, going for a walk every day, uh, there was such a heightened anxiety, especially in the last two years of we're going to lose everything and we're going to lose everyone. Um, I think, I think, uh, what, what you said to be able to, to shake off the dust reminds us that we're human. Um, and I'm not often reminded of that as a pastor. So. Well, I think too, I think in COVID has been part of the challenge for all of us in, in this vocation. Um, how honest do I be with the church and right. how appropriate, how far do I go? Here's right. an example. Um, I'm not a long preacher. I'm not that smart. I'm about 16, 17 minutes on a long Sunday. I invest about an hour of preparation for every minute of that sermon. Now, that's just because I'm old school. <laughs> so 17 minutes worth of sermon is going to be about 17 hours of preparation. Well, when we went visual, virtual, and we needed to use projected images and PowerPoint, things like that, that's another... 15 to 30 minutes per minute of the sermon to create that, put that together. Mm -hmm. So what used to take 17 hours on average before COVID now takes 24 hours. Now I'm slow. You younger people are quicker than I am. <laughs> um, but folks see the, the finished result, but they don't always have an awareness of what what it takes me, and I'm not saying this to be a braggart or to boast, I've had to be honest with folks. I've said, this is how long it takes me to get, I never, really? You only work one day a week. <laughs> so trying to be honest about that is a sign of my health, not keeping that inside. I don't tell the whole world. I don't brag about it. I say, let me tell you what's going on. Yeah. Here's why I don't have time to do that. I don't have time to do that Bible study that we did before COVID because here's where I'm investing my time right now. Mm -hmm. And I found that most people, they may not like that. They may not understand that, but they, it's important to hear that from me yeah. as a pastor. And I think it gives them grace and space to share with me what their lives are like. My, my wife works in the school system. <laughs> if you don't work in the school system, you have no idea right. what our, Public schools are going through. You have no idea if you don't work in that world. Right, right. 
So I think being that kind of that that honest, uh, being honest and self-aware in appropriate ways uh, is a sign of health. And I think it gives grace to other folks to kind of walk alongside you because they're going through stuff just they're going through stuff I don't know about. Right. Uh, and that that allows them a chance to kind of share with me along the way what they're experiencing. Um, and I think that's that's a theological model of what it means to be church and do church. Um, I, I have had to speak to someone who crossed the line. Um, Jim, I love you, but your behavior is not acceptable in business meetings. And let's talk about this. How can we come together? Your behavior is not acceptable to me. And I don't know many congregations at all that have had that kind of honest conversation within themselves. So they identify this is expected. This is what we, this is the expected behavior. This is acceptable. This is not acceptable. Yeah. Sometimes we do that as parents with our children until they are bigger than us and faster than us. And we have to change our approach because they can outrun us. Um, but I think that kind of conversation is, is important. And the theory helps me realize that when you have that kind of conversation in a family, or in a congregation, it, it affects the larger, the larger dynamic. Mm-hmm. Most businesses that are effective have that kind of conversation with their employees. You know what's expected, what's appropriate, what's inappropriate. Not many congregations know how to have the conversation. Right. Um, and when we have the conversation, we see folks getting reactive. My gut tells me they've not had the conversation in their own family. So we're pushing their button because we're, we're trying to have a conversation here among 25 families that 23 of those families have not had at home. You understand that, 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 that yeah. reactivity? Well, and just that there's, um, even within the church system, there are other systems that are, I mean, it's just like the wheels that are so interconnected. Yep. Um, um, I'm kind of like, I guess in my head, I'm actually picturing, you know, the inside of a clock or whatever, with all those wheels that are kind of turning together and affecting each other. Um, when I get when I get stuck in trying to relate to someone in our congregation, I sit down with a pencil and paper and I do um, what I call a mind map. Uh-huh. The outer circle is a congregation. And then I kind of draw the circles with which that person is connected to the larger congregation, choir. Finance committee, buildings and grounds, Sunday school teacher, Bob Deacon, whatever, and that gives me some perspective because if if they're struggling with something, it's going to play out in all those relationships. Right, right. As much as we want to convince ourselves we can compartmentalize our brains, our brains will do that under duress and under stress and when you're anxious, but our bodies are not designed to to compartmentalize like that yeah and bowen theory bowen theory helps you understand that we compartmentalizing makes keeps us comfortable Mm -hmm. but it keeps us disconnected right from ourselves and from those who are important to us be it family or other folks in our circle of influence okay well i i want to jump to um talking about this through a scriptural lens real quick. Um, 
we had kind of discussed talking about uh, the story of the prodigal son, um, which just, just briefly, um, you know, there's this, there's a man with two sons. Uh, we, we, the, the story is familiar, even in, even in the secular world, uh, but there's a man with two sons. The, uh, older son comes and asks the man for his inheritance, uh, and he takes it and he goes and he squanders his wealth. Uh, meanwhile, the younger son is at home tending to the pigs and the cows and the goats or whatever. Um, you, uh, let me, let me, Preacher, I want to interrupt your sermon. Please, yes. You got the brothers confused. Oh, this, I switched them. Did I yes, do the you, younger brother? I said the yeah, younger. Yeah, you switched them. You said the older <laughs> brother wanted his inheritance, and the younger brother was at home taking care of the, the garden. So sorry. No, switch. Rewind. The younger brother wanted. So are, you, are you? Are you? Do you have brothers or sisters? I do. And you, do you want to? Where, are you, yes. Are you? Where gonna, are you? Where are you in the birth order? <laughs> I'm the youngest. Okay. And your older sibling is brother or sister? I have two older brothers Ah. and they are twins Ah. and they're seven years older than me. So tell me you are, but you are the oldest daughter. That's true. Okay. (laughs) The only daughter. (laughs) You're the only child. Five years, five years, the birth order reboots. So you are a functional only child. (laughs) Yes. Um, 78% 78% of clergy are firstborn children. Wow. 78% of clergy are firstborn children. Oldest. Why, why is that? Tell me. <laughs> what is it? What is a product? What is a product? Is a prodigal son story tell us about that? Oh, Old, this... Oldest children, oldest children. Now, this is descriptive, not prescriptive. That's important. Right. Okay. Oldest children are formatted to carry the family mantle, mm. to be the standard bearer of the family, uh-huh. to do things perfectly. I'm an oldest. I'm, I'm a perfectionist in recovery. <laughs> I'm an oldest. <laughs> My parents expected me. They had seventh grade education. They expected me to go to school. Mm-hmm. I was in school 31 consecutive years. <laughs> and they were confused. Why it took me so long? Oldest children are responsible, even if they do so with a grudge. Because uh-huh. that's that's their role in the family. Right. We're serious. <laughs> we don't do spontaneous things. Because we have to plan out our spontaneity. Okay? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Youngest children get less attention from their parents, because now the attention is shared with two people. Hmm. My brother and I had the same parents. We grew up in two different families. Huh. Because when he came along four years later, the family dynamic was different than it was when I came along. Okay? Right. So we had the same parents, but we grew up in two different families. Youngest children, because they get less of the parental focus, tend to be a little freer, the more relaxed, a little more adventuresome. They take more risk. And the oldest children are not risk takers because hmm. we don't want to fail. <laughs> okay. Youngest children are freer to take risks, think outside the box, follow their own path, not the path that their parents expect them to follow or need them to follow. Hmm. So in the product of the story, that plays out. 
Right. The oldest bro- the oldest son, responsible, the, the standard bearer. Youngest son, footloose and fancy free. <laughs> and the challenge in the story is the father is so self-aware of his love for both of his children that he doesn't get tripped up by either one of their behaviors. Hmm. He, he, he arms wide open when the younger son who screwed up comes back. There's always a place for you. The oldest son gets pissed off about what happened to the younger brother. Son, you've always been with me. So the father was was clear enough in his role as a parent, as a leader, to embrace both of those, both of those sons, both of those kinds of behavior. We tend, you know, when you a lot of times when we hear this, the sermon preached or the gospel preached, it's with. Well, I'm an oldest son, so I kind of know, you know, I understand that dynamic, but but maybe maybe we could say that that each one of us might identify with one character more than the other. But I think I think all those characters are part of us. Mm-hmm. We're 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 the loving father, the loving parent, I'll say. Mm-hmm. We might sometimes be that oldest brother with a chip on our shoulders. I've been serving this committee for 37 years and now they don't ask me to serve again. What do these young people know about doing this? That's a quote <laughs> from a from an, a nameless, an unnamed congregant. Um, <laughs> and and our, our our families don't intend to screw us up. They don't they don't intend to mess with our minds, but it happens because our parents kind of have these patterns that they grew up in with their parents. And they hand those patterns down as they begin to parent their children if they have if they have biological children. So these are patterns we learn as a child. Mm-hmm. And the patterns we learn as a child, we carry with us as we grow up. We might become more self-aware of those patterns, but we don't we don't take those patterns off. Um, I, I, a quote I want to give. Someone has said a person who tells the truth about himself is never boring. <laughs> A person who tells the truth about himself is never born. We don't know. There, there's so many parts of this where we don't know. Mm-hmm. Did the son ever, you know, he admitted his mistake. He told the truth. And his self-awareness allowed him to re-enter the family system. Hmm. The older brother, at some point, we don't know all the details. I want to believe, because the gospel is good news, that he had some kind of self-awareness about what was going on. And he calmed down a little bit. But it was the the role of the loving parent that stayed connected to both of those acting out behaviors Mm -hmm. that allowed the family to reunite and come back together. Um, That's a down and dirty, again, I use that phrase maybe the third time already, uh, perspective on on that story. but I, I think it's a way for me to understand the story. And I, you know, I've always thought of myself as, I'm, you know, in the Mary Martha story, I'm Martha. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm not a good cook, but I'm Martha because I'm going to do the right thing the right way at the right time. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm wired for that. Uh, I'm wired for that. And um, it, it, it does play out for me. Um, but I'm aware of that dynamic. I'm aware that I, by default into an oldest child, and I'm 64 years old. So I default with that mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can be playful about it. You and I were playful. 
So where are you and the family flying? Yeah, you're the youngest, but you're also the oldest. Right. You hear that, you hear that, that, that paradox? Mm-hmm. You're the youngest child, but the oldest daughter. Mm-hmm. So you got a double whammy. <laughs> you can you can, you can have fun but not for long because <laughs> you got to get back to work right okay so that's that's a, a a playful way to think about the story i do think the theory i do think bowen family systems theory is a window to look at that story mm-hmm. and i think that story is a way for us to look back at bowen family systems theory and the, the interplay of yeah. dynamics um now that won't preach far I don't think but uh <laughs> but I think the 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 important thing I mean through everything you've talked about today but but even in the in the prodigal son even in Mary and Martha um we this past week we uh we looked at um how Jesus tells folks to handle conflict in the church by going to the person and then bringing in a couple other people I think what what I see throughout all these discussions uh, or all these, these topics that we've kind of gone through today, there is such an importance to Mm -hmm. self-awareness. And it's not to say that there's not going to be anxiety in the system. It's not to say that, you know, there's going to be imbalance at times, but that, you know, the system is going to balance itself out. But I think the self-awareness of, um, of, of what is going on or, uh, if we are looking at that, um, is it Matthew 18, where Jesus talks about, you know, how to, how to speak to people, um, and, and bring in other witnesses, allowing other people to hold up a mirror to you and say, you know, let, let me define this situation for you, um, as a way to move forward in love together. Um, not to say you're bad and you're good, but let's talk about what is before us in this system that's happening. Um, when I first got, when I first began working uh, with this theory, I had a coach. I've got, I've got a coach now, um, and uh, we're talking about my family, and I was uh, at odds with my brother about something, and I kept wanting my brother to change, <laughs> to change, to change. And uh, Elaine said, "You've read the book. You've read the, the book of Bowen Family. There's only one person you can change. Who is that?" <laughs> Well, that's me. Okay, you you do not have the capacity to change your brother. You might think you do, but you don't. So the only person I can change is myself. Right. And that's been one of the gifts the theory has given me to, to work on myself. Because as I change myself, I occasionally notice some reciprocal shifting in those folks around me. I'm not making them change. I'm not telling them they've got to change, but they see something different in me. Mm-hmm. And I think they're, I think they're drawn to that in a healthy way. Right. Wow. You didn't get uncorked this time. What's going on with you? So yeah. that, that self-awareness is what this is all about. And in the prodigal son story, if I could add a verse or two, I do think all three of those characters had a deeper sense of self-awareness by the time the story was over. Mm-hmm. It wasn't easy. But it, it happened. Mm-hmm. And that's the grace of the story for me. They had that self-awareness. Right. Um, and, and that's good news. That's, that's gospel to me. Um, clearly, I wear this Christian lens on most of life. But I think it's good news. Uh, Bowen, uh, Murray Bowen was not a religious person. Mm. 
Mm. Uh, you don't find any references to religion, any faith tradition at all in his theory, but that doesn't detract to me the power of the theory and how I think it's a valuable way for us to look at life, look at our human behavior, our relationships. Uh, he was not a religious person. So I think there are ways with integrity to overlay Bowen family systems theory onto theological situations, religious situations. But just let's remember, he, he wasn't writing to a group of faith people. Right, right. So. Well, thank you. Um, I, I so you know, 10, 10 minutes turned into like two hours. I know, you know here we go. It's four o'clock. No, um, I, I appreciate, I really.